Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge, till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him whom he tramples on me. Salah. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Those are verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 57, which along with Psalm 56 are the psalms appointed for today, Monday, July the 26th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm John Green, and I'm your host. We're continuing our study in the life of David. Now we're in 2 Samuel, uh, along with Acts uh, 15, 36 to 16, 5, as well as uh, a reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 14 to 29. So today we're, we're continuing in the life of David. Remember at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul, Saul dies in battle. He is killed by um, the Philistine army. And, and then he ends up taking his own life because they didn't quite get the job done. And Saul didn't want to live because he didn't want to be uh, tortured essentially and so he takes his own life but then in the first chapter of second samuel one a young amalekite comes to david and tells him that he's done this he is the one who finished off saul and took his crown and his armband it's a, it's a confusing situation but what actually happened here how did he end up with those uh articles of saul's to pass along to david <laughs> and so here we come now to Second Samuel two. David inquires of the Lord, "Shall I go up to any into any of the cities of Judah?" David's been staying outside the land, and it's because he's been on the run from Saul, who's, who's breathing murder after him for this period of time. And so, David now asks the Lord after Saul's death, "Should I go up to Judah?" And the Lord said to him, "Go up." David said, "To which city shall I go up?" And he said, "To Hebron." So David went there. His two wives also, remember he has three wives actually, one of them is not with him though, and that's Michal, the um, daughter of Saul, whom Saul had given to another man <clears throat> afterwards. And so he takes up Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and, the, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Remember, David is from the tribe of Judah, and so now the, the men of Judah decide that he will be their king. And then they tell David what happened to Saul's body, because that's part of the story the Amalekite didn't have to give to David. And so, it, remember, it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who went over to into the Philistine country and went and took down the bodies of Saul and Jonathan and two other sons of Saul from the wall where they had, had been attached or affixed. And so the men of Jabesh Gilead took the body of, bodies of Saul and Jonathan, the two others, and buried them down in Jabesh Gilead. And there was a reason for that because um, Saul had actually, his mother was, was from Jabesh Gilead. And, his, and then when the men of Jabesh Gilead were um, just about to be enslaved by the Ammonites, um, Saul sent down a force down there and relieved the men of Jabesh Gilead. So they owed him, and he was also family. And so they, he, David finds out what's happened here, and then he sends messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you've done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. 
But Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, took another son of Saul's, Ishbosheth, and brought him and made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. So Ishbosheth is 40 years old, and this is the first we've heard of Ishbosheth, and suddenly he's made king over, over all of Israel with the exception of Judah. And so he reigned there for two years. And then the house of Judah continues to follow David, and he rules over the house of Judah in Hebron for seven years and six months. So it's a long, long time. David's only partially king over a divided kingdom. And so it's got to be consolidated at some point only to see it broken apart again later, and that's how you end up with the lost tribes. But, but here, the, there's a division among the people. The commander of the army takes Ishbosheth and, and makes him king over most of Israel and David king only over Judah. And so how is this going to be resolved? There's, there's obviously going to have to be resolution. Will there be civil war? And, and what's this all going to look like? Because we know David values Israel. He values the united people of Israel. He doesn't want to see a division in the kingdom. He, he wouldn't go after Saul, who was trying to murder him all the time, and, and much less would he not want to go to war with his own people. And when we get over here to the Mark 6 passage, we, we see the, pass, the gospel passage is one that I preached just a couple of weeks ago. And it, Herod hears about all the things that Jesus is doing. He, he finds out what's going on here, and, and then we're kind of given backstory on this. He has come to the conclusion, and, and Mark gives us a version here of, of Jesus asking, who do men say that I am? Well, some say Elijah, and some say John the Baptist, and, and some say one of the prophets. Well, that's exactly what happens here. They, they, there's a belief that John the Baptist, whom Herod has put to death, has come back to life and is doing great miracles um, through through this body that he now inhabits. It's the spirit and soul of John the Baptist. There is an odd strain of Judaism that actually believes in, in um, reincarnation, that, that a soul will cycle back through. And so there, there there's this weird, I don't know where it came from. I mean, I do. It came from Kabbalah. But, um, but it, it, it pervades certain portions of Judaism that believes in this reincarnation thing. And, and so how this spirit inhabits the body of Jesus whom John had baptized. I have no earthly idea how that all is intended to work, but Herod believes it. Herod believes this is John. And it's partially because of Herod's fear of John. He had a fear of him because John was a holy and righteous man is what it says. And he kept him safe from his wife, Herodias, who had previously been married to to this Herod's brother. And so he had taken his brother's wife, and she went willingly because it was sort of a move up in, in life, a station in life for her. So now we've, we've got that odd situation going, and John speaks into it, and he speaks into it because Herod's a Jew. And so he's holding him accountable for his Judaism. He's not holding him accountable as a Roman um, figurehead. He's hold, holding him accountable as a Jew. And, and so Herod knows at some level this is wrong, and, and then he knows that John's actually a holy and righteous man. And so you don't put a holy and righteous man to death for, for calling you into account. He, he, he's got a similar problem Pilate did with Judas. He doesn't find anything, any guilt in him. Herodias doesn't care, the wife. 
she hates John the Baptist because he's coming between her and her husband and her in power. So he's a stain on her life. And so what's she going to do? She's going to get rid of him, just like David had to do with Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite. You've got to get rid of him because he's the problem. John's the problem because John keeps speaking out and saying the truth and that this, is a, this marriage is wrong. And she's concerned that, that Herod might put her away if he accepts that what John the Baptist is preaching. And so what happens is Herod's having a birthday party for himself. He gave a big banquet for nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And, and then Herodias' daughter comes and dances for Herod. It pleased him so much that he said, ask for whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. Well, this girl didn't have any idea what to ask for, so she went and asked her mother, hey, what should I ask for? He promised me anything up to half the kingdom. And Herodias says, ask him for the head of John the Baptist. Finally, she's going to get away. You know, we see these, these stupid, king, weak kings like Herod. Um, we see him do multiple bizarre things. We see the same thing in the story of Esther, right at the beginning of the story of Esther, where the king makes promises and, and makes foolish promises, including asking his wife to come and essentially dance naked for them, and she refuses to do it, and that's Queen Vashti. And so Ahasuerus um, has her thrown out because she won't do this thing that he promised that she would do. But, he, but they can't go back on their word. They can't go back on the things that they have committed to um, because they're, they're afraid that it'll make them look bad in the eyes of their own guests. No, be a strong man. Deny this request. Say, no, that's, that's not appropriate for me to do that. I made a stupid vow. And it's just, you see it again and again. In the Bible, you see people making idiotic vows like this and, and then paying up on them because they fear what other people think. Because I mean, a vow was a very, very important thing, and especially when a king said it. Because if a king goes back on a vow, if he goes back on a promise and a commitment, then, then what can be relied upon in the king's word. And so he actually goes along with this and sends an executioner to take John's head off and bring it back on a platter. And so he does. And they give it to the girl and her mother. You know, what a horrific thing. What, a, what kind of world do these people inhabit that this would be okay? It's just, it's sick. It's absolutely unbelievable. And you can imagine that Jesus knows at that point, well, the jig is up now. This is not going to be much longer. We're moving inexorably towards my own death. And and it's got to be incredibly painful for Jesus because he knows the time is now at hand. And so time is short. And And it's a difficult thing, to say the least, to even begin to imagine the, the emotions that he's going through. I mean, this is his cousin, after all. It's the one who baptized him, the first one who recognized him as Messiah. And now Herod has put him to death for speaking the truth. It, it's, it's, the, some of these stories that you read of, of, of the times that, that the Bible set in are just brutal. And, and we can be so thankful for Christianity that, that has actually brought a civilizing influence to the world. And people can argue one way or another about that, that it's a product of the Enlightenment and all that kind of stuff. But, but the reality is, is that, that we live now with, with the tension of, of living in betwixt and between, betwixt and between a Christian world and a non-Christian world. Now, I, I'm not glossing over history. I mean, there were a lot of wars, huge numbers of wars, and huge number of people killed because of battles over, quote, Christianity. 
um, like the Crusades and so many others, the War of the Roses and all this. There were so many lives lost because of Christianity, because of toxic and spoiled Christianity that, that, that would continue to, to do violence to people. And it's something we need to come to grips with, certainly. We need, to, we need to, to repent of some of the history of the church. There's just no question that we do. The forced conversions and all kinds of other things. And so, um, but, but we live in a brutal world. We live, we live in a world that's always brutal. And we as Christians need to be speaking out against that. We need to speak out against brutality and violence and oppression and all those issues. We need to do that in, in appropriate ways. And, but we need to be aware of and we need to be mourning always over a world that's broken and busted by sin and needs the redemptive, redemptive uh, coming of the kingdom, which is what we're supposed to be praying for, is the coming of the kingdom. And so when, when Paul and Barnabas, they've gone back, remember, to Antioch, and, and they're there, and that's where they brought the word from, the Jerusalem council. And now, after that part is complete, Paul says to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. He's going to go back and check on those churches. He's going to make his second missionary journey. And Barnabas says, let's take John Mark with us. And, and Paul says, no. He withdrew from us in Pamphylia and had not gone on with the work. He abandoned us when we needed him. And then he and Barnabas ended up in, a, in an argument and there was a sharp disagreement is the way it's worded. So they separated from one another and Barnabas took Mark with him and went to Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas who had come out from Jerusalem with him and he departed having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia strengthening the churches. Then he comes back to Derby and Lystra and those are in Lyconian uh, territory. And remember, that's the place where they wanted to make Paul and Barnabas into gods because of the healing of the man who had been born without the use of his legs. And so they go back to Derby and Lystra, and there they find somebody. They find Timothy, to whom two of the letters of the New Testament are written. And he's the son of a Jewish woman, but his father is, was Greek, and his mother was a believer. So Paul does this strange thing. People liked him a lot there at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted Timothy to come with him and leave that region and go somewhere else. He ends up in Ephesus, and that's where, he, where Paul leaves him and puts him in charge of a church there. But, but here, when he takes him with him, he knows that he's going to face opposition when he goes to these other places. Lystra and Derby were outside of Jewish territory, and, and so it wasn't that big a deal there. But, but then when he goes to meet with the other churches, he did, Paul wants to avoid the controversy of having somebody that he's raising up as a leader in the church who is uncircumcised, in spite of the fact that Jerusalem has determined it's not necessary for that to happen. Paul worries about this, obviously, because he's got Timothy that he wants to move into a leadership role. He's seen something in him, and he, he feels like, I've got to get this done. So he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in the places he was getting ready to go, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So he wants to to make sure there's no objection to Timothy at all. And so it speaks well of Timothy that he submitted to this. Um, but And you can understand Paul's rationale for this, but at the same time, it's a little bit iffy to me that Paul made the decision to do this. Because why would he do that? And, and ultimately, this is it's that same kind of thing that ends up getting Paul into trouble and ends up getting him put in prison, frankly. 
is because he goes along with this idea of, well, we're trying to appease the Jews who are upset about this thing. And so Paul goes ahead and does this, and he takes Timothy with him, and he tells all the churches where he's been in the past about what the decision of the Jerusalem Council is. And it's, it, it, you see these, these odd things in all of these lessons today, that, that there are these seeds for division, the seeds for um, a, a future issue among the people. And, and so we've, we've got this situation where now all these men, all the people that we're looking at are sort of alone by one, for one reason or another, David alone as the head of Judah and, and opposed by Ishbosheth and the rest of Israel, Paul and Silas now in this, and Timothy in this place where, where they are striking out on their own and, and they're, they're um, opposed by some of the others. And then we see the same thing now with Jesus in the John the Baptist lesson, and that is, is that that the world has come against John, and now it's Jesus, and his date with destiny awaits, and so it's it's a a, a sense of how do you feel, how do you deal with things when you're alone? How do you deal with the fear of being alone, and, and knowing that there's opposition to who you are, and how do we deal with that, and what what do we do with that fear? And how do we take that to the Lord and do what David did so successfully while Saul was chasing him? How do we leave that with the Lord and leave it all to him and trust him, no matter what it might look like for us day to day, that we still have to trust him for the end of all things? And that's the way we're to live today.